you are a God who is great. You are a God who is full of mercy and love. You are rich in it, in fact. And Lord, we are so grateful that you are a big spender. So we just give you thanks and praise for that grace, that mercy, and that love. And the way that you lavish it down upon us. Just ask that you come and, and be a part of the remainder of this service. You were so in our worship, and now be so in that which remains. We give you all thanks and praise and honor and glory. And we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I believe I got a word from God this morning, but please take it and consider it and decide for yourself. Embrace and engage. I want you to embrace me as you have never embraced me before. There is so much more, and I want to go as deep with you as you will possibly let me go. <coughs> embrace me. Then engage. Be strong and of good courage, for I, the Lord, will go with you wherever you go. I want you to take a straight look at the thing that is holding you back, the pain, the anger, unresolved issues. And with me, I want you to go straight through that. You are a people of courage. Do you not yet know your strength? Do you not yet know your power? Silly kids, it's not your power. The power is in me, the resurrected Jesus, his spirit that lives in you, and wherever you go, I am with you. You will never be alone. Take a beat on that thing that's got you, Go straight through it and know that I will be with you in the pain and I will be with you in the glory. And that, my children, is the abundance of life. Thank you, Harry. All right. Now it's time for our little get-to-know-you portion, what we have uh, lovingly started calling social networking for introverts. <laughs> so your question today, and for those of you that are new, here, here is the, uh, here's the deal. We, uh, I will give you a question, and you are to go find somebody you don't know, and today, for you uh, that call this church your home, it's a target-rich environment in terms of people you don't know. Um, so you should go find someone you don't know or don't know well and ask them this question. And then they will then ask you the same question and uh, you can share your answers. So here's your question for today. If you had your own talk show, who would be your first one or two guests that you would invite to come and be a part of your talk show? 
Uh, well, yeah, let's just open it up and say either. So if you could interview, I guess, if you want, you know, somebody dead on your talk show, it <laughs> the ratings might suffer a little, but, you know. <laughs> well, that's, that's true. All right, so there's your question. If you had a talk show, who would be the first one or two people you would invite to come on and have a chat with? Find someone you don't know, share your answers. You have about five minutes. You may begin. Rain shy.
All right, you've got about a minute to wrap it up. Well, as I mentioned uh, last week, evangelism has kind of become the unmentionable word for many people in the church. Um, one church leader uh, of a mainline uh, Christian denomination referred to it as the E word. She didn't even want to say it, right? And that's hugely unfortunate. Um, and the thing is that, that those of us who follow Jesus understand that, that we really are supposed to be sharing our faith. But, as I showed last week, surveys are showing that we're all, for the most part, increasingly uncomfortable in doing that. So, rather than, you know, come in here and talk to you about evangelism in the classic sense of, you know, verbally proclaiming Jesus' work on the cross, I'd rather sort of approach it and talk to you about another activity that's really accessible to everybody who follows Jesus. Now, <clears throat> this little mini-series, it's really just two weeks that I've been doing, isn't really designed to try to get you to do something that's really hard, right? It's about, it's really designed to get you thinking more about the subject of evangelism and to think about activities that are maybe a little less intimidating than going out and preaching on a street corner. Um, which, you know, whose effectiveness you could question anyway. So again, as I mentioned last week, I think this, this activity and the one that I talked about last week, which was being an encourager. And if you remember, we used the example of Barnabas from uh, the book of Acts and listed numerous ways that he was an encourager and how that helped really foster the growth of the church. Um, and so... Both of these things, what I'm going to talk about today and then being an encourager, or you could look at them as sort of pre-evangelism activities. So what they do is they create an environment in which a spiritual conversation could sort of naturally happen, right? And so this is the second message on the E-word, and today what we're going to talk about is, as you can see, how to express Jesus. So let's pray. Father, I just I thank you for this message. I pray that uh, those sitting here would have ears to hear, eyes to see, that open hearts and open minds would be given to these words. Take away anything that is not of you, just let it pass through people's minds, but let your words of truth resonate in the hearer and let it compel them to action. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you think about this idea of expressing Jesus, I'm not just thinking about expressing Jesus verbally, although that is someplace that we want to get to, right? That's what we're called to do. Uh, I don't want anybody to hear this series and go, oh great, I'm off the hook. 
I don't ever need to speak to anybody, my family, my coworker, my roommate in the dorm, my running partner. I don't need to talk to anybody ever again about Jesus. Uh, I do not want you to hear it that way. What I'm attempting to do is talk to you about creating an environment in which that spiritual conversation could become more natural, maybe more organic, if you want to think of it that way, less forced, less awkward, less uncomfortable. So today I want to talk about expressing Jesus in ways that point to him without necessarily using words. And I'm sort of thinking about verses like this one from the Sermon on the Mount. This is from Matthew. There we go. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. This is, this is uh, Jesus speaking, and he says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So what Jesus is talking about is how to create a signpost that points ahead of itself, right? If people will follow that pointer, then ultimately it leads them all the way to God. And so in this particular text, Jesus is talking about doing good. And certainly, not exclusively, but certainly in this text, he's talking about acts of compassion, uh, acts of mercy to people who are hurting, who may it be financially, maybe it's emotionally, maybe it's physically. But I think there are some other pointers to the Lord that actually go beyond acts of mercy. There are things that make our light shine to the world so that people can see this signpost and then if they follow it, they're going to bump into Jesus. So here's the first one. Make things beautiful. Make things beautiful. Did you know that there are over a hundred references in the Bible to the words beauty and beautiful? And beyond the words beauty and beautiful, there's an enormous list of things that the writers of Scripture find beautiful. Houses can be beautiful. Clothing can be beautiful. A flock of sheep can be beautiful. A person's voice, a city, a piece of pottery, a mountain, the sea, flowers. All of these things are pointers to God, who is the master artist. Have you ever thought about God being an artist? See, if your primary calling is centered on creation and on imagination of some kind, then I'll bet you actually have thought about God being the master artist. If you are an artist yourself, or a musician, a dancer, a filmmaker, a writer, this might be one way that you conceive of God. And for the rest of us, if that isn't how you've typically thought of God, it's a helpful way to sort of expand your view of, of who God is, and to include this idea that God is a master artist. For example, after the flood, God gives a sign of his promise that he would never again destroy the world by water. Now, he didn't just make this promise on a piece of parchment, or he didn't carve this on a, some stones. He didn't type it out in black and white. Instead, he did it with a rainbow. God's sign of his promise was the rainbow was the rainbow. And what we have in the brilliant and shimmering colorful light of a rainbow 
is a promise not only that the world will be preserved, but that the world would continue to be a place of beauty and wonder. Now, you know, it's kind of hard to see a rainbow and not think of that promise that God made to Noah. But also, I think, you know, even as you age, and you've seen a lot of rainbows, you still get excited when you see one. I saw one yesterday. I was driving back from somewhere, and I'm headed to the house, and I can see probably two-thirds of this rainbow in the sky. I could see from about here to here, then it was blank, but then I could see it kind of come down towards the end. And, you know, you just sort of get giddy. It's like, oh, look, it's a rainbow. <laughs> it's like it's probably the thousandth <laughs> rainbow I've seen, but it still is cool. But the thing is that, that God's artistry is not restricted to rainbows. Most of us like to look at a beautiful sunset. Every evening, all across the globe, God paints the sky. And each sunset is a little different. Pablo Picasso said this, God is the greatest artist. He never does the same thing twice. Jesus talked about God as the master artist in the Sermon on the Mount. A little bit further on in chapter 6 from where we started, here's what he says. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Did you ever consider the idea that God could have made everything functional? You know, if you think about things from an entirely evolutionary perspective in which the only purpose of things is to ensure the survival of the species, why did God create so much beauty? If you think of it in that sense, there's way too much beauty in the world. We don't need a beautiful sunset to propagate the species. Might put you in a romantic mood. We don't need rainbows or gorgeous waterfalls or majestic mountains to ensure human survival. Everything in the world could be flat and drab and colorless. But God is a master artist. And whatever he does, he does beautifully. Now, it's sort of unfortunate that we don't have any of Jesus' woodworking projects. <laughs> I think that would be kind of fun. But what we do have is Jesus' extraordinarily creative stories. His parables, his brilliant sayings. Really, has there ever been a more creative or memorable speaker than Jesus? Think about Jesus' stories and how powerful they are. The story of the prodigal son, for example. Millions and millions of people in the last 2,000 years have found hope that God would receive them back through a simple but profound story of a son returning home to his father. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan and the countless acts of charity and kindness that have been motivated by this simple but profound story. Think about the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Think about how many choices for good have been made because people took the golden rule to heart and said, I'm just going to treat that person the way I would like to be treated. One way to express Jesus, to display him to the world, 
is to work together with him in this holy calling of making things beautiful. The Bible says God not only makes beauty, he is beautiful. Let's look at Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask for from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. It's a fair inference from texts like these that an experience of earthly beauty can awaken a person to a longing for beauty that's more lasting and more wonderful, more transcendent than anything that the world can provide. A longing for the beauty of God. As human beings, we're called to make the world beautiful. Do you know who the first person is in the Bible who was said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it wasn't the disciples on the day of Pentecost. It wasn't John the Baptist in the womb. In fact, it's not even anyone in the New Testament. You have to go all the way back into the Old Testament to an artist and a master craftsman named Bezalel, who is the first person in the Bible said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Read this from Exodus chapter 35. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezael, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and Aholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with the skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in, purple, in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. See, the Bible lists for us all kinds of creative activities to make the world a little more beautiful. God gave us, as human beings, the ability to write and speak poetry, to write and sing songs, to dance, to design buildings, to make sculptures and paintings, to make beautiful clothes. Life is more than utilitarian. <coughs> if you have a great sense of fashion, it's not just a worldly thing. You don't have to be frumpy and dress plainly or wear ugly out-of-style fashions from the 1950s. You can make the world a more beautiful place if you have you know, a great sense of fashion or an incredible decorating sense. If you enjoy playing a musical instrument and you do it well. If you're a great gardener and people stop on the street and they're like, wow, your flowers are amazing. You're, if you're a great cook and people enjoy the meals you make. If you're a creative speaker and people come and love to listen to you whenever you talk. All of these things point ahead of themselves. God is the master artist who is the most beautiful being that's beyond imagination. A hairstylist was once asked, what is it about being a hairstylist that you find fulfilling? She said, oh, that's easy. I love the feeling women get when they look in the mirror and they see themselves as beautiful. Talk about an environment in which a spiritual conversation can take place. How do we express Jesus 
in ways that go beyond words, we can make things beautiful. And we can tell the truth. I want to show you a video from a late-night comedian named Jimmy Kimmel. Now, this clip is a semi-regular feature of the show, and it's called Lie Witness News. And the premise is this. Kimmel's staff takes to the streets of L.A. as roving reporters, questioning pedestrians about recent stories in the news. The stories, however, are not quite right, to say the least. Voter turnout is already much higher than it was in 2014 for the last midterm election. You know 43 people voted in the last midterm election? <laughs> Most everyone you meet says they're planning to vote, but uh, we wanted to do our own tests of that. So we went out in the street last Tuesday, and we asked if people have gone to the polls and voted in the midterms that day. Of course, the midterms didn't happen last Tuesday. They happened tomorrow. And just to be clear, the folks you're about to see are not early voters, voters by mail. These are people who were falsely claiming they went to their polling place that morning in tonight's midterm voter edition of Lie Witness News. So tell me all about what it was like this morning when you voted in the historic midterm election. Was your polling place busy, not too bad? Um, not too bad, actually. Not as busy as I thought it would be. How long did you wait to vote? Um, like 30 minutes, which is, I think, not too bad for a place like Hollywood. <laughs> what was it like at your polling place this morning when you voted? It was super busy. A lot of people were coming out, more people want to be involved in voting. So it was really, really cool to see that. Did you have to present an ID, or they let you go without one? Um, I had to present my ID. What ID did you present at the polls this morning? Um, my driver's license. What backup ID did you show as well? Oh, my school ID. And what was the third backup? Um, I, I had a credit card. Did you vote for Senate, Congress, Supreme Court, or President today? Uh, honestly, yeah. like, um, I voted for Supreme Court and the other ones just because. Yeah. Did they hand out anything besides free stickers at your polling place? Did they hand out those bacon-wrapped hot dogs? No bacon-wrapped hot dogs. There was cookies. Oh, what kind of cookie did you get? Chocolate chip. Ooh, how did that taste? It was good. Okay. Chewy. Chewy. So did you vote yes on Proposition 9? Uh, yes, I did. Why do you think it's a good idea to make medicinal aspirin illegal? Uh, just because, like, with any type of medication, it can be addictive, so just want to be careful. Sure. Did you vote yes or no on Proposition 91? No. What were you afraid the orphans would spend that money on? No, son. How did you vote on Proposition 91? No. Why? It just didn't give me the right feeling. Who did you vote for for LA Unified School District student body president, Aiden or Kayla? Uh, oh my gosh. I think I voted for Aiden. Would you like an I voted sticker? Sure. And again, you can only have the sticker if you actually voted. So you actually voted today? Yeah. Okay. Do you swear? I swear. Do you swear on your life? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but it came off, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> or it didn't. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Does anybody doubt we live in a culture of lying and deceit? Gallup tells us that in most institutions, whether we're talking about public schools or media, large businesses, banks, Congress, the president, 
trust in most institutions is in the negative territory in the United States. People just don't trust the leaders of most of our institutions to tell the truth. In fact, these days, folks are so used to lies and deceit, they just shrug it off. It's not at all uncommon for a political supporter of one of our politicians to say something like, well, I know she lies. She lies all the time, but I don't care. I really like her. I don't care that she lies. See, in the Bible, God is known, among other things, as the God of truth. It says this, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? And in Isaiah it says, I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Because God is a God of truth, a being who always tells the truth and never lies, because God keeps every one of his promises and because he's always faithful, one way followers of Jesus can express Jesus is to be known as someone who is completely honest and honorable, who tells the truth even when it hurts. Here's what uh, we read in Proverbs. This is a shortened version of Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, a lying tongue, a false witness who pours out lies. The truth matters to God. He hates it when we, tells lie, when we tell lies. Look at what it says in Revelation. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Okay, that should cause all of us to shudder just a little bit. I don't know about you, I find it a little bit disconcerting that God classifies liars alongside of murderers and those who practice the occult as people who will be excluded from God's kingdom. Truth-telling matters to God. Many of you who are listening to this message right now claim that you have a personal relationship with Jesus and it's making a real difference in your life. Is that really true? Does our relationship with Jesus make a real difference in our life? How can we test this? It's a great quote from Mark Twain where he said, the weakest of all weak things is a virtue that has not been tested in a fire. May I suggest to you that a great test of the reality of our relationship with Jesus is whether we tell the truth even when it's embarrassing or makes us look a little less intelligent or less competent or less successful. Um, James Bryan Smith wrote a wonderful book. It's called The Good and Beautiful Life, or The Good and Beautiful God. I'm sorry, that's one of three books he's written. And in the book, he confessed to a really common form of lying that most of us have engaged in at some point or another. Mr. Smith was asked to a dinner party with 10 couples, all of whom were very well educated, and someone introduced him to another man saying, Jim teaches at a college. The man said, oh, I love talking to fellow academics. So this other man begins talking with him about literature, and he says, 
I think that Hawthorne was the most brilliant writer of his generation. Don't you agree, Jim? Jim said without thinking, well, yes, he was quite good, even though he had never read a sentence that Hawthorne wrote. Quite good? He was the best. Anyway, I was making this point of the genius of the scarlet letter and its irony. I mean, the fact that the accusers are the true sinners and the accused sinner is actually the most righteous character. Don't you agree, Jim? Well, yes, yes, I agree. And again, he had never read a sentence of Hawthorne's writings. He had never read the Scarlet Letter. But he finds himself smiling and nodding and agreeing. He said the conversation lasted 10 minutes, and it was painful because he had dug this hole of pretense that he couldn't get out of. Why do we do that? Why do we exaggerate our accomplishments? Why do we say we voted in an election that's still a week away and voted for issues that are non-existent? Why do we pretend to know more than we do or pretend to be better than we are or pretend that our kids are doing better than they are or that we're most more successful than we really are? Why are we so afraid for a moment of looking ignorant <coughs> of confessing that we don't understand a word or we don't understand you know, a concept or that we're not quite as successful or accomplished as we appear. The bottom line is that we all engage in this pretense because we who claim to be followers of Jesus don't have identities that are firmly rooted in him. If we walked around knowing that at the core of our being, Jesus loved us, that we are never alone, that Jesus was with us, that Jesus accepted us and approved of us and called us his friends, that Jesus welcomed us just as we are, even though we hadn't read this or that or haven't done this or that or weren't very bright or weren't great athletes or didn't have strings of boyfriends or girlfriends in high school and college. If we knew that we were acceptable just as we are, don't you think that this would eliminate so much of the neurotic lying and pretense and exaggeration that you and I engage in simply because we're craving the approval and acceptance of another person? We can't bear the social awkwardness. If you don't really know down to your toes that you are a child of God, if you don't know that you are loved, it's incredibly scary to be vulnerable before somebody else, especially if they have power over you, or especially if you think they might disapprove of you. Truth-telling matters to God. Truth-telling tests faith claims. Some of you who follow college basketball may remember the story of Brandon Davies. He was a basketball star at Brigham Young, and uh, in the year he was a senior, BYU raced out to a 27-2 and record. They were ranked number three in the country. And so everyone expected BYU to win the Mountain East Division, make this big splash in the NCAA tournament. But just as they were getting ready to leave for their conference title, uh, at conference tournament where they were expected to win the title, the media got lit up with the story that Brandon Davies, one of BYU's star players, 
was dismissed from the team for an honor code violation of having premarital sex with his girlfriend. Now, a lot of people criticized Brigham Young for being small-minded and old-fashioned. But BYU said this, look, we have an honor code. And our honor code is rooted in commitments that are higher than winning a basketball game or even winning a national title. And the scripture for this mindset comes from Psalm 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? He who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Do you want to be a signpost for Jesus? Someone who points ahead, not just by talking about Jesus, but by really living your faith? Then tell the truth and keep your commitments even when it hurts you. How do we create an environment in which it's more natural for us to talk about Jesus? Make things beautiful. Tell the truth. And third, make peace. See, we live in a world not only lacking in beauty and truth, we live in a world that's also lacking in peace. But God is the God of peace. In Hebrews it says, now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. We've just had Christmas, so you ought to remember the first words spoken when God brought his son into the world on Christmas morning. What did the angels proclaim that God was doing through the birth of Jesus? The night the son of God was born, the angels cried out, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And then in Isaiah 9, 6, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When Jesus takes control of a marriage or a family or of a person's life, and when people yield control to Jesus and to his good rule and reign, the result is always peace. And often the reason that a marriage or a family or a person lacks peace is because the people involved have not surrendered their lives to Jesus. Making peace, what the Bible calls reconciliation, is a key word in understanding what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Romans says this, verse five, or chapter 5, verse 11, Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Human beings who were previously alienated from God were now reconciled or made at one with God, at peace with God through faith in Jesus. If you want to express Jesus, if you want to be a pointer to him, if you want to create an environment in which talking about spiritual things comes naturally, then we need to help people make peace with each other. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, the NIV translation is somewhat unfortunate in this case because what Jesus literally said was this, 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, the NIV takes away the gender bias, and it's more inclusive, but unfortunately, they're missing Jesus' point. As I said last week, if you'll remember, that in Jewish thought, the phrase, you are the son of something, means that you partake in the character of that thing. So in Jesus' day, if someone called you the son of a pig, they're not saying something about your parents. They're saying something about you. They are saying that you have the habits and the behavior of a pig. So when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, he's not talking about our adoption into the family of God. He's saying, you make peace between people. You are displaying the character of God, who is a God of peace. And so along with making beauty, along with telling the truth, a major pointer to Jesus is when we followers of Jesus orient our lives towards bringing people together rather than pushing people apart. Christians are people who spread peace and not division. So how do you express Jesus? You look for ways that will bring people together instead of keeping people apart. When we, see a, when we see a fire, a Christian should pour water on the fire. And if you're the kind of person who, when there's a little fire, when there's a controversy, when people are at odds, you pour gasoline on the fire. If you're the kind of person who separates people, who slanders others, who lets one person know what something else, somebody else said about them that was bad, if you're the kind of person who constantly stirs up controversy wherever you go, it's doubtful that the kingdom of God has ever broken upon you. But if you're a person who in some way makes the world a more beautiful place, if you're a person who tells the truth even when it's embarrassing, even when it costs, if you're a person who goes out of their way to bring people together, then you are someone who is expressing Jesus and his good rule and reign in the world. So that's your faith in action assignment for the week. What one thing can you do this week to add a little beauty, a little truth, or a little peace to your world? What one thing, what can you be intentional about doing taps onto one of those three things. Because if you do, it's a step towards expressing Jesus to those around you. And I can tell you, people notice. The world notices when you don't act like they do. When you're not willing to engage in gossip. I think I've told this before. It's happened to Sally as well. But in, back in, the, in my business world days, be sitting in meetings, somebody, you know, swears, says something, you know, off color, and they, 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 they kind of look at me, and they're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I certainly didn't go around proclaiming that I was a follower of Jesus. But they knew. And 
you know, it bothered them in those sense. So people noticed th this kind of things. And so those are the sorts of things that when you do that, you truly are kind of opening that door to be able to have a spiritual conversation. How many times have you heard somebody say something like, you know, you just seem different. What's different about you? Talk about an open door. Holy cow. And so that's what we're, that's what we're looking for in these, in these action items, is to sort of have that type of an attitude that allows that conversation to take place, right? So let's make that our, our goal for this week, to try and do one thing in one of those areas that um, can maybe begin at least to get a door cracked open a little bit so that at some point you can actually have that conversation. So let's pray. If I could have the folks who are uh, um, released to pray for people to come up now as well. Lord God, we all need to do a better job of expressing you, of talking about you and telling others about you. But we acknowledge the fact that that's just hard. And so, Father, help us to embrace these 